Wish you knew more about the medical device industry and how you can do your job more effectively and put your career on the fast track? Then stay tuned while industry veteran Pat Cothy shares strategies and tips from customers and company insiders who help drive the industry. Now let's join Pat as he explores how you can master medical device. Welcome. Today we're going to be talking about physician education. Now, physician education has always been an important factor for the adoption of new medical devices. And in some cases, it's even a regulatory requirement. However, not all companies view education as a key marketing program to help drive sales, customer loyalty, and to, uh, to really identify and, and drive what the company brand is. Uh, also, how you educate depends on your product. Some are simple products uh, and simple uh, training programs that you need, and some are really quite complex and require different training methods. But whatever your product is, the quality of the educational experience for the doctor can really make a big difference on their opinion of your product and of your company. Today, I'm happy to have Dr. Aaron Ali and Dr. John Schlitt join me to discuss physician education and their business, which I think you're going to find fascinating, Med to Market. It's one of the premier edu- educational venues in the country. Through the years, I've participated in a lot of different educational programs, wet labs, cadaver labs, skill courses, all kinds of different things. And I've seen all kinds of different venues from hotel rooms to basements to dedicated facilities. I can tell you that Med to Market is different. And I encourage you to look at their website, which I'll include in the show notes. Dr. Ali and Dr. Schlitt are both practicing anesthesiologists in Austin, Texas. Dr. Schlitt earned a chemical engineering degree from Rice, his MD from UT Southwestern in Dallas, and completed his anesthesiology residency at Duke. Dr. Ali earned a biomedical science uh, degree from Texas A&M, his MD from the University of Health Science Center at San Antonio, and his anesthesiology residency also at Duke. I think you're really going to enjoy listening to their journeys as physicians and also entrepreneurs, and I hope you think about how you can apply their message on education to your business. Here's our conversation. Dr. Schlitt, Dr. Ali, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Glad to be here. Great. So we're going to dig uh, pretty deep into innovation and physician education and the business that you founded and are developing. But to get things going, um, how did you find your way into into medicine? Dr. Ali, would you like to start with that one? Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking that. Uh, you know, it was funny when I was in uh, undergrad at Texas A&M, I was actually an accounting finance double major all the way to the end of my sophomore year. So I had no intentions of going into medicine. I had two older brothers that had done the same thing and already graduated and they were doing, one was working at a bank and another one had a finance office. And uh, my oldest brother called me up. He's like, I hate what I do. It's awful. You need to change tomorrow. You'd be a great doctor. My mother was a doctor. Uh, He's like, you know, you're the smartest guy in the family. You should definitely change. And amazingly, I took it to heart and uh, walked into my counselor's office the next day and switched out of 60 hours of business into about 20 hours of uh, pre-med. So I lost about 40 hours and uh, found myself in medicine, but it was probably one of the best decisions I ever made just because I'm getting to do a lot of the things I wanted to do. And that was business at first. 
but I'm doing in something I'm very passionate about, and that's medicine. And, and why anesthesiology? You know, when we were in med school and you get your clinical rotations and you actually get to spend a month in OB and a month in cardiology and, and you get to kind of touch and feel everything. I enjoyed all the different sectors. You know, pediatrics was awesome. Cardiology was awesome. Surgery was great. Uh, when I got the anesthesiology, I got to do every single one of those. So one day we would be putting in an epidural into a laboring mother. The next day we're doing a heart surgery. The next day we're running upstairs for a person coding on the floor. It was fast paced. You got to do things in a very immediate way. If I want to change someone's blood pressure, it takes me about 30 seconds. When my internal medicine buddies want to change someone's blood pressure, it takes them six weeks. So there's an immediate gratification involved in the fact that you get to touch all the different subspecialties of medicine. So that was very enticing and exciting to me. Dr. Schlitt, how did you uh, find your way into medicine? Yeah, interestingly, my, my story is somewhat similar to Aaron's in the fact that my route was a little bit circuitous. I grew up with two hardworking blue-collar parents who had always pushed for me to become some kind of professional, but didn't really have a strong feeling uh, one way or another. I attended Rice University in Houston, and it was a strong engineering school. And I just thought at the time, let me get the strongest degree I can, which will give me the most options. So I was actually a chemical engineering uh, major at Rice, graduated with a BS in chemical engineering. And then well, when a lot of my friends and peers were graduating a year ahead of me, the engineering degree actually did open up a lot of doors. And so at that time, the quote unquote sexy jobs were jobs as investment bankers on Wall Street, management consultants for McKinsey, Bain, BCG. And they loved the engineering skill set, the way the engineers think. And so I actually applied for a job and took a job on Wall Street as an oil and gas investment banker for Payne Weber, spent some time actually doing that. And then when all my friends decided to go off to business school, I kind of had that itch, similar to Aaron, to do something that I might be a little bit more passionate about. And so I pivoted and applied to medical school and decided to, to go that route at that time. And, and anesthesiology, what, what drew you there? Similar experience in medical school. You do all these rotations and what I sort of realized early on is that I really enjoyed using my hands. I really enjoyed the procedurally oriented part of medicine. And ironically, what you learn when you spend time on a surgery rotation is if your passion is surgery, you're really going to only get to operate a couple of days a week. And you're going to spend the rest of your time in the clinic seeing patients to get them ready to have surgery. When you're an anesthesiologist, you're doing anesthesia 24-7. For me, the, the, the gratification element was the immediate gratification that Aaron speaks to, but also the gratification of getting to do what, I, what I'm passionate about every day instead of just a couple of times a week. Uh, and then finally, you know, I, I've always enjoyed the, the quick decision-making element of it and the, and the calm under fire element of it. Uh, when things go wrong, we're like the pilots in the movies that people talk about, right? We We've got everybody's lives in our hands, and we've got to be calm and collected and go through the proper algorithms. I felt that that was something that I would be pretty good at, and, and hopefully it turns out I have been. Great. Some, uh, some really different backgrounds, too. Uh, so you're, you're also both, I think, pretty entrepreneurial, both from a standpoint of, of business as well as new businesses organizing your business and practice management as well as new business. So Aaron, I believe that uh, you have uh, some experience in, in forming an anesthesia group. Tell me about that. 
oh gosh, it's been about 14 years ago. I was with a, a giant group when I moved here into town. And after seven years, that was not my place. Uh, I wanted to push the limits on certain things, be a lot more entrepreneurial. And, and my original group kind of wanted me to just show up in a you know, dress shirt and khakis, push the propofol and go home and you know, just do your job. So my wife and I actually started our own anesthesiology group and started kind of serving all the the smaller groups that couldn't hire a giant group to cover them, right? So we started picking up little places. I ended up at a surgery center where another gentleman myself built that practice up over a couple of years and ended up being bought out by a large private equity group back to anesthesia group. Kind of built groups, uh, been with giant groups and enjoyed both facets of it. But I did learn quickly that I do enjoy being my own boss and not having a large group kind of tell me you know, where and what to do and how to do it. That's just my personality. That's who I am. And, and I, I love to kind of push the envelope a little bit and, and the guy that'll probably jump out of the plane first, hoping that the parachute works and I'll check it out later. Uh, that's always kind of been me. So uh, it's been great to start your own anesthesia group and, and go through all the little things that you never think about. Because when you're with a big group, they take care of everything. You just need to show up for your scheduled time and do your thing. So there's a lot of nuances you learn, a lot of business uh, principles that you never thought about until you're actually running the show yourself. Was that your first entrepreneurial jump or 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 when you were oh. a kid, did you have a lawn business or, or, yeah. or was this the f- first real entrepreneurial? No, activity? I've I've been running little what I call gigs and projects and, and little startups all my life. I paid my way through Texas A&M by having a appliance dolly business. And what I would do is when the students would move in or out of their dorms, A&M is a giant campus. So the parking lot may be a half mile away from your dorm. I went and cornered the market on all the appliance dollies in Bryan College Stations. I had 40 appliance dollies. And I parked it underneath the only oak tree between the parking lot and the girls' dormitory. And every mom and dad who walked by rented one out for 20 bucks an hour. So with 40 of them, I was making a killing every hour. The police loved me because the traffic was moving twice as fast. And I paid for four years of undergrad doing that. Uh, so I've always had little gigs like that. And I've always tried to figure out what's the need and how can I uh, provide a solution to that need. And I think that's just, you know traveled with me to the point of starting multi-million dollar companies now and figuring out what the need is and what we can do to solve that problem. Wow, that's fantastic. What about you, John? Where did you catch the entrepreneurial bug? Yeah, I mean, I would I would honestly have to say for me, I mean, sure, I cut lawns and, and did things, but I wasn't as passionate about it as as Aaron was. You know, I, I did a lot of those gigs for fun. I mean, the greatest job I ever had as a kid is friend of mine and me uh, partnered with an ice cream truck company and, and rented an ice cream truck out of Boston and drove it to Cape Cod and and worked the Cape all summer. But that, I think, was more about the son and the girls at the time. Um, <laughs> for, for me, I think working on Wall Street as an investment banker, when you're when you're looking at these companies that are that are doing mergers and acquisitions or you're getting ready to take a company public as a junior banker, you go on these road shows and you travel with the with the C-suite around to the various brokerage offices selling the company. And so getting to spend time with those types of folks that started companies, built companies, uh, getting to you know share some intimate conversations with them over meals or on the road um, really kind of got the fire burning for me. And so coming out of investment banking, even though I was going into medicine, I knew I was always going to be interested in the "Quote unquote business of medicine." So let's let's talk about your venture right now, Med to Market. We'll get into the history in in a minute. But as it sits right now, Aaron, you're the CEO of Med to Market. Could you explain to the audience what the mission of the company is and what exactly you do? 
Sure. You know, our, our goal has always been to kind of disrupt traditional medical education, training, and innovation. Uh, when we first looked at it into the space, the, the sector was kind of owned by the universities, the hospitals, or people that didn't know anything about medicine running that scene. Uh, and then you look at the clients who needed the medical training, the ability to train physicians, or they have a medical device that they need to get out to the hands of physicians. There was no infrastructure behind it, right? You have to find some hospital who'd be willing to give you their basement floor uh, and some dungy looking room with very little service, uh, which is the way we started our, our business at the beginning. We were at, a, at an old children's hospital that was defunct and not being used. And we were using the facility uh, kind of as a PRN basis uh, and doing great. But what we wanted, our vision wasn't there. But the goal was is to to build a flagship uh, center where medical innovation, medical training, uh, education, all those kind of things can come together in a private uh, area that's not behold to a whole bunch of bureaucratic issues or a lot of rules and regulations, those kind of things. We wanted a very neutral kind of Switzerland place. And it took a while for us to find out what the perfect space was for us. You know, at first we were kind of a consulting group. We wanted to get in there and help people have access to the voice at a customer from physicians that they couldn't get a hold of. You call John and I, we can get you a neurosurgeon within two hours to show up at your doorstep and look at a product. You go at it on your own, it might take you months to find that neurosurgeon, right? So we had that access and that ability to get to those people. But you know, that that was the mission is to to disrupt the, the traditional, the old fashioned continuing medical education and how devices roll down, how physicians learn the newest devices and how they got trained on it. Uh, just because we've had many devices put to us where we looked at it and thought their curriculum was pretty weak, the way they taught was pretty weak. John ended up on a great circuit teaching a lot of advanced procedures. I did a little bit with him at one time, but we saw that ability that we were great teachers, but the infrastructure wasn't there. The model wasn't presented well. The docs were put into these pretty weak little places, like a tiny Motel 6 would be to the Four Seasons approach. And we really wanted to take that Four Seasons approach. And that's what we ended up doing with our venture with Met the Market. So what does the facility look like? What services are you providing? So we have a 32,000 square foot facility here in Southeast Austin. Uh, it's in an industrial flex building. I love it because you pull up, it's a very clean looking place. Uh, we have physicians that walk in through the front door and they stop and they actually step back out because they think they're at the wrong place. It looks more like the Google office, right? It, it's It's got beautiful leather couches. It's got a bar there. It, it's got an event center. It's got a gorgeous saltwater aquarium. We walk. It doesn't look anything like a training facility because uh, they're used to going into basements and shoddy little places that don't really cater to them. But the facility was built around the core business of bioskills. And bioskills, in essence, is a human cadaver. So someone who's willed their body to science is there on a surgical table. And you have surgeons, medical device reps, engineers, uh, executives, around uh, this cadaveric specimen and now you have multiple opportunities you're able to train the device rep on how to sell to the physician because the physician's standing right across the uh, table from you the physician gets to practice for the first time with this device i can't tell you how many times i'm pushing a patient into the operating room and i hear the surgeon at the scrub sink talking to the device rep on how do i use this product exactly and the patient looks at me going is this my doctor's first time using this product and here i am pushing medicine so they forget that they asked that question and so that's the core of our business is to allow all those different vectors to be able to communicate in a very open and, and certainly less stressful environment since you're not worrying about uh, a live patient. Uh, we added an event center, which helps to kind of support the idea of the 200 physicians fly into town 
we have a large auditorium that they go into and give those lectures and have that appropriate place. When they want to break out, we have a part of our event center that's a nice lobby and bar and place to eat. The other division uh, that we have along with our event center and our bioskills is our co-working uh, division. So those three divisions hold our company together. We added the co-working because we felt that a lot of the smaller entrepreneurs and smaller groups and those groups that aren't making tens of 20 millions of dollars already uh, needed that infrastructure too, a place that they can office uh, without signing a 10-year lease. You know, they're just on 12-month memberships, right? They can leave anytime. They can leave within a month or two. We're not going to hold their contract and take eight months of money from them. Uh, they have beautiful offices. They get to share all the amenities. They don't have to go out and do all the investment of purchasing or buying or renovating an office building. And so having that turnkey solution for them, putting them in the same infrastructure that allows those resources for them to use in our labs and then an event center to be able to cater to their physicians or whoever they're selling to is a very unique space that I'm going to tell you there's nothing like this in the United States where all three of those elements have been put together. Certainly there's co-working, certainly there's labs, and certainly there's event centers. But the way we put it together for the healthcare sector, I think, is uh, an incredible niche, and we're very excited about it. Great. Hey, John, let's go back a little bit. Uh, so you guys are practicing in the, in the same practice. When did you start to learn that there was a need out there? Uh, how, how long ago did you guys, did this idea start to germinate? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And, and, and for me, uh, it really goes all the way back to the very beginning of, of my journey as a, as a true medical professional. So when I graduated training, uh, as Aaron alluded to, I think part of the reason what we do now is so important is as I graduated training, I knew there was a need for me to continue training and or help train others. Aaron and I actually had the opportunity to train together at Duke. And one of the areas that, that we were really well trained in was something called regional anesthesia. So when a patient's undergoing an orthopedic procedure, we know how to inject numbing medicine around the nerves that feed the extremity they're having surgery on to numb that extremity, to really minimize the pain and speed up the recovery. And so early on in my professional career, I started teaching regional anesthesia courses for one of the large medical device companies. And I would travel around the country teaching these courses on weekends and nights to, to other physicians who hadn't quite acquired the skills to, to adopt the techniques and or the new technologies that were coming out. And as I was teaching these courses, a few things really resonated with me. Aaron hit on the first one, which was I'm scanning live patients and or doing uh, work on cadavers in hotel lobbies, where we're, we're trying to take traditional hotel event space and turn it into professional medical space. Uh, so that was number one. But number two, which I think is even more important, and, and both important for the medical device companies and the, the physicians that might listen to this podcast, are I quickly learned that in this space, my personal belief is that education is marketing. And what I mean by that is if you're a medical device company and you launch a device, the, the fastest way to gain loyalty from a group of physicians is not to advertise or make commercials or give them colorful brochures. It is to, it is to teach them. It is to, it is to help them gain additional skills that will set them up to have more successful practices than they otherwise would have. And so if, if education is done well and done properly in the right environment and the right atmosphere, 
and a physician adopts your piece of technology, they're going to stay loyal to that technology for years because you've enabled that skill set that they didn't otherwise have. And so once sort of I put those two and two together in my mind, and Aaron and I started talking about the the gaps that we knew existed in that space, we kind of knew that something like Med2Market had to be built at some point. Were you guys looking at it from a physician standpoint or from a company standpoint or both? I would say we were looking at it from both perspectives. Uh, I think one of the the unique um, qualities that John and I have always kind of had is the ability to look at it from multiple different perspectives, right? Because if you look at it from the doctor's perspective only, <laughs> you've, you've missed about 70% of it, right? Because people skip over the circulating nurse in the room or the surgical tech who's got to put this device together in the background or the supply manager who's got to figure out how he's going to store this uh, or how much ahead that they need to purchase things, right? And the insurance companies that are going to end up paying for some of this stuff, right? So there's so many different perspectives, and it's one of the little, um, little things that I always said is this 360 approach, right? If you look at it from just your five degrees of perspective, you've missed most of the area there in front of you. So we try to put ourselves in multiple different positions. So I think as we've done that, it's worked out quite well because a physician walks into this place and they say, wow, you did it exactly the way I want it. A device rep walks in and says, wow, you did it exactly the way I would have built it. And on and on and on. We hear that from multiple different specialties, different groups. And so uh, I think that's been one of the, the very nice, successful traits that we've kind of implemented into all our business that's, that's made things go the way it has. What exactly is involved? What is in the facility? What materials are there? What imaging is there? What are, what are all the services that you're bringing into one location? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, look, when I look back at our FF and E budget, our fixtures, furniture, and equipment budget, um, there's multi millions of dollars. You know, so if you think of a C arm, a C arm runs around one hundred fifty thousand dollars to purchase. Uh, we have six of them, uh, so you've already hit almost a million dollars just in C arms. Surgical tables run fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. We have twenty one real operating room lights. So you actually raise your hand above you, actually grab the OR light, and actually move it just like you would in the operating room. I've been to other bioskills facilities where they have a lamp, <laughs> you know, something they bought at Home Depot, and they're trying to play that as a surgical light. Our uh, training bay has 19 operating room lights in there, and it's enough to be able to put almost 100 people in there with 19 stations, which means each station has a cadaver and a surgical table and a back table and all the equipment necessary. We're Texas Anatomical Board certified, uh, meaning we have to hit certain requirements that we have to meet uh, to make sure that everything's well secured, everything's well taken care of. Our training bay has 17 ventilation exchanges per hour, different chemicals, there's different smells. You want to get that stuff out. Uh, so when someone throws a mom and pop shop up in some strip center and doesn't put into the, uh, in, in all these things into account, it really bothers me. It's one of the motivating factors to keep on building what we do. Uh, our audio visual is incredible. You know, we have the ability to stream from any room in the building to another room in the building. Um, I think one of the best examples is we had about 100 Army physicians here at our facility. And they did a, um, a surprise visit. And the surprise visit, while everybody was in the auditorium, we had these two giant projector screens. The astronaut who was on the International Space Station came up live, floating inside the International Space Station and through Houston and Mission Control, had a live Q&A with our Army doctors here on the ground in our, in our building. So the fact that we've been able to touch out in the space and, and do, a, in essence, a Zoom call out to an astronaut tells you that you know we really put a lot of thought into building this uh, facility 
it has the capabilities of if there was a you know some type of terrible disaster where the hospitals were inundated and their operating rooms were inundated, we could run 21 operating rooms here if we needed to, and even run an ICU here if we needed to. Uh, we got looked at when COVID was getting really nasty, and we were wondering where we we're going to put overflow from ICUs. Uh, the EMS groups came in here and looked at everything, and we were actually set to do that. So the facility is almost turnkey to do surgeries. If you just roll in some anesthesia machines and some oxygen tanks, we're ready to go. Uh, so all the equipment you can ever imagine that's at a hospital is here. But then add all the supportive you know, event centers and bars and kitchen area and all that kind of stuff. It just becomes a really turnkey solution. Uh, you know, it's Sometimes I almost kid about the fact that it's, we're almost like wedding planners, right? We have everything for you. The whole entire venue is done. The flowers will be there, this and that. It's the same thing here. Uh, our clients want the same thing. They want a turnkey solution. Here's what I want. Here's how many people are coming. And uh, the beauty is we can supply everything they've, they've asked for and we can kind of meet those demands. John, Aaron did a great job in explaining all of the different equipment and, and how, it's, uh, how it's laid out within the facility. Why is it important from a training standpoint that it be as, as lifelike as possible? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and before I really dive into that, I'd actually like to add a little bit to some of Aaron's comments. I think while the equipment and the infrastructure is, is important, I think what's, what's equally important, again, when you look at it through both lenses, the, the physician lens and the medical device company lens, are the level of services. And, and what I mean by that is if you take a real step back and, and look at this industry as a business, it's a very fragmented industry where uh, there is not a, a set series of standards for the types of services and the types of equipment that need to exist in places like this. And Aaron alluded to this earlier, but we early on made a decision that we wanted to, to have a four seasons approach. So not only is the equipment, I believe, top notch, but the level of service. And what I mean by that is small examples. A cadaver, if they want to operate in the abdomen, can't be frozen. It has to be thawed. Some cadavers need to have an MRI before they get worked on. Some need to have a CAT scan before they get worked on. There need to be certain pieces of equipment that need to be able to be shipped in. We've got trucking bays where trucks can back in so we, so we make sure we have the, the appropriate equipment. So the equipment is important, but I also think that the level of services is, is, is equally important. To get back to your original question, the reason it's so important to be lifelike, and I'm sure we're going to get to the future, as you alluded to earlier, but, but in the current environment, uh, first of all, as a physician, there are certain things that need to be done uh, on real tissue. Uh, so not only when you're suturing or you're manipulating layers of tissue, right? You know, in, in physician terms, when you're doing surgery, you've got, you've got sub-Q, you've got skin, you've got subcutaneous fat, you've got layers of muscle, uh, you've, got to, you've got bone, you've got ligament, you've got tendon. You're often inserting medical devices into one, if not many of these structures. You've got to get the feel of what it feels like for a screw to lock in place, or you've got to get the feel for what it feels like to create a pocket to insert your device between the proper muscle layer. Uh, there really are no training aids that are going to completely mimic that feeling. And then, truthfully, it comes back to confidence, right? If you've got an older physician learning a new technique or a, a young physician trying to improve technique, there is nothing that's going to inspire confidence in bringing what you're learning to the real operating room than practicing it on real human tissue. Aaron, 
training not only involves the physician, but it also involves the staff because uh, you've got a, a team of people that are performing an operation. Do you often get just the physician or do you have the team uh, attending as well? That's a great question. Uh, you're spot on. You know, when you're in an operating room, it's not just a surgeon. The surgical tech can be just as uh, important as can the device rep or the circulating nurse and, and anybody else that's involved in the actual touching and feeling of the surgery. I love to do analogies to sports. <laughs> Drew Brees is who he is, and, 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 and incredible quarterbacks are who they are, but if their offensive line stinks, you would never hear of them, right? They would just get sacked all the time. And it's the same thing here. If you don't have good staff around you, your surgeries will be mediocre at best. Uh, one of the things in the programs that we've tried to push really hard, you know, our business tends to lean towards the medical device companies, but we're starting kind of a new campaign by pushing towards the hospitals and saying, send your entire surgical team, send your orthopedic surgeon, your surgical tech, your circulating nurse, your device rep, bring them all here as a team of five or seven. And let's do your surgery over and over until you're so good at it that now you can do four total knees in a day instead of three. One of the things John and I think remember a long time ago was the golden room. There was this operating room that was called the golden room. And the golden room, everybody got paid better. Everybody got uh, kind of patted on the back a little bit more because that was the best surgical tech, the best surgeon, the best anesthesiologist, uh, the best everybody, right? That was the best of the best. It was a top gun room in essence. But we don't train that way, unfortunately. There's a cost to sending five or six people from your hospital. You, know, you lose them for that day, and they come in here and train. But the cost associated versus a return on your investment, it's, it's a no-brainer. Uh, and so we don't see as much as teams showing up. We do see a lot of device reps and their surgeons showing up. But that's one-third of the group, right? And so uh, one of the projects that we're really hoping to push is, e even with the insurance companies, you should pay to have these people flown in for part of their medical education to make them that much better. If if half the team is good and the other half stinks, you still have a mediocre room and you're going to have a mediocre case. And you're going to have a mediocre outcome and unless you have someone incredibly stellar in there that can really motivate the team. And I've seen some stellar surgeons that can truly motivate their team. But I promise you that surgeon shows up in the morning and says, if I don't have Susie as my surgical tech today, I'm not doing cases here. And John will back me up on that, that there are surgeons that demand that surgical tech because they know that's the best surgical tech. But guess who surgeon B gets? He or she does not get the best surgical tech. They get the second best. And so that's one of the things we would love to push harder is to bring your whole team in here, make every surgical tech in every room phenomenal, just like their surgeons should be, and just like their circulating nurses and on and on. So let's talk about your customers for a second. You alluded to, to the fact that Medical device companies are your customers, but also hospitals are your customers as well. Talk a little bit more about who the medical device companies are and, and how you got started with them. Our very first bioskills lab we ever did, and correct me if I'm wrong, John, was uh, A-cell. Uh, we did an inguinal hernia mesh bioskills lab. Um, we had never done a bioskills lab in our life. John and I were actually moving cadavers around by ourselves down in the basement, trying to get it upstairs onto the operating table and get everything set up. And, you know, we didn't have a lab director. It was, it was us. And we quickly found out exactly what the device reps were looking for. They were looking for, like I said, the infrastructure, the ability to put the stuff on this event because uh, it mattered a lot to them. Because if they're flying in their surgeon from New York and you did a crappy lab, that's a sell you're not going to make and you lost a lot of money. So we quickly understood that our device companies are our biggest clients. They're the ones that have the product. 
they're the ones that put tens of twenties of millions of dollars in to get that product through the FDA and do their clinical trials. And so this means a lot to them. This is the last mile bringing in that physician into that operating room or that bioskills lab to teach them how to use this product and grow that confidence uh, that we keep on alluding to that if you have that confidence and education is marketing, it's a win-win for everybody in the room. Uh, so the device companies have always been our number one clients, but you know we train every EMS personnel here in Austin, Texas. Every single paramedic and EMS provider here in Austin, Texas has been through our building and has intubated chest tubes, cut legs off for amputations, done all sorts of things. We've had military personnel come in here. We've had Navy SEAL teams come through here. Uh, we've even had the ATF and FBI look at us as a training facility. Uh, so our, our customers are, there's a lot of different sectors we can go to, but the core business tends to be around the medical device, uh, the, you know, the giants, the strikers, Abbott's, Medtronic's, those kind of groups. You know, they're pulling and, and rolling out innovations almost on a monthly basis. Um, there was a Wall Street Journal article a few years back about, you know, their industry of rolling out new products runs in the 30 to 50 billion. That's just getting the products out. But then the training and the infrastructure needed is another 30 to 50 billion so there's a lot of money in this sector that's being spent. Uh, we just hope to be able to uh, use it efficiently, drive costs down, and, and train the docs who really need the training along with the rest of their staff. John, are most of the companies orthopedic companies, or do you have a, a wide range of different companies? Yeah, I would say if you if you broke us down by, by segment, um, I would say orthopedics and spine probably make up our, our largest two segments. Quickly behind them are some of the uh, chronic pain companies that do a lot of implantable stimulators and do non-invasive spine procedures. And then probably I would say the fourth largest, maybe cardiovascular type devices, again, implantable pacemakers, AICDs, things that that don't necessarily require um, pulsatile blood flow, right? And and that's, that's one of the reasons this is fun for Aaron and I, because Again, you got to understand the nuances. We talked about real tissue earlier, and it's critical, but some devices actually require pulsatile blood flow. We can we can take our cadavers and hook up non-pulsatile blood flow and actually have volume circulating through the circulatory system, but uh, but we can't we can't currently do pulsatile blood flow and get the heart to eject in a pulsatile fashion. Uh, and then the only other thing I'd like to add to Aaron's comments earlier is, is while these these large clients certainly make up the majority of, of what we do, our, our passion around the co-working in the, in the innovation lead us to partner with people that are working uh, to bring new devices to market as entrepreneurs themselves. So we, a lot of our co-working clients find their way to co-working because A, everything Aaron said earlier about the affordable space but B, access to the lab and the innovative atmosphere. So we have a, a scrub tech school that utilizes the lab and trains alongside some of these large medical device companies. And what better experience for a scrub tech who's training? What a wonderful job in today's economy. Uh, but you get experience working in the lab, which is right next door. And then a lot of our startup companies are drawn to our space because they want to utilize the lab. And so we found some really creative ways to make sure that we take care of our, our large cap clients, so to speak, but still have, have plenty of time, attention, and detail uh, to our entrepreneurs and, and some of our schools, and actually in certain scenarios, blend them together so that they both reap the benefits of what's going on in the lab. So you guys are not an accelerator or incubator. You're, you have co-working space. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, I would I would definitely would not call us an accelerator or an incubator. Um, it's a great topic you just brought up. Uh, we've worked and talked to lots of incubators and accelerators, and uh, I think where we found ourselves in that space is once you have gone to the university and accelerated, created your business, you have your C corp done, and you have your idea and you've done your minimal viable product and maybe you have some revenue generated we're happy to take those companies as they graduate in essence from that uh, space into a okay <laughs> we're with the big boys now we actually have to get revenues we got to get in front of doctors we got to train them how to use the product uh, we're past a lot of the r&d though we do have groups here that are still doing research and development on the products or they're past the fda uh, or even if they're close to getting past the FDA, we can help them with that. So we find ourselves as the next step in that you know that difficult process of going from light bulb idea to you just got acquired by a giant medical device company. We don't accelerate and incubate here per se, but what we do is offer our clients a few different options. Your, your option can be you have an office here, you walk in through the front door, you wave at me and you say, hey, doc, how are you? And you go about your business and do your day. Option B is my door is always open. You want to sit down for five minutes and chat about things and ask some questions. Come on in. No one's going to charge you anything. Uh, we're happy to uh, you know introduce you to people and get you going. And then option C is, guys, we're not really sure what we're doing here. We really need some help and some consulting help. We'd love to put Met to Market on our board of directors, help guide us, help us introduce us to, to funding, get us in front of people, that kind of stuff. We may even give them office space for free for a few months. But what we don't want to become is kind of like a social security service where we're providing them all the money to exist. That's not our job. Their job is to get to that position, be able to fund and take care of themselves. Our job is to elevate them and get them to the next uh, step in the process because we know how difficult and how cumbersome the road is to success in the medical device world, the medical innovation world. So, Aaron, you went from uh, a customer to now in the sales business a little bit. So you're you're out there. Uh, getting customers with medical device uh, device companies, so kind of switched. What was the thing that you learned the most when uh, when you switched from being customer to salesperson? I think um, one of the most important things, uh, as as any physician will probably support me on this, is you got to check your ego a little bit. You know, you, you used to be the doc in the room, but now you're the sales rep in the room, in essence, right? Listen, it it, it obviously helps to walk in a room and have an MD behind your name as the person selling the concept and the idea, because you've got credibility, you've been there 20 years plus, and you know what you're talking about. You're not some Joe Schmo that said, I can do this. You know, I've always hopefully checked my ego through the years, but it, it's easy for me to be passionate about a concept and an idea. And, and a lot of times in medicine, when you're the doctor, uh, the passionate part is when you're talking to your patient and you're, you know, you're trying to soothe their fears. You're trying to get them through this rough moment because they're not coming to see you because it's a great day. So usually something's not you know, perfect here in their world. So uh, as as a salesperson or on the other side, my passion now is truly about our baby that we started here, right? This this company is is our thing. This is this is one we didn't walk into and become partners four years down the line that someone else started 30 years ahead of us. This is our baby. Every single cushion or rug or or wall that's been painted here was paid by us or we put our butts on the line with our 401ks to, to pay for it. So the passion involved in standing in front of a group and selling yourself is actually pretty fun. Uh, it also you know, puts a little stress on you that, hey, if we screw this up, uh, we could be losing a lot of money. And so when we did a lot of investor pitches at the very beginning, uh, that was me selling my entire everything, my soul, my, my passion, my 
expertise and I'm standing in front of some very sharp family offices or private investors who have invested in multiple different successful uh, organizations. And they're hammering me with questions that I've never had before. You know, there's a lot of P&L this and cash flow that. I'm thinking, well, crap, I didn't get that in biology. You know, so it, it, it's difficult, but we're at the level we're at because we can learn things pretty quickly and we can, we can try to understand things. And I can spend some time in front of YouTube and understand cash flows a little bit better. Uh, but you're really selling yourself and, and your passion. So for me, that's that's natural. I've always I've always enjoyed that. I've always got a big kick out of sitting in front of a group of people that I've got to convince them that my idea here is, is worth anything. And so, yeah, I had some doors slammed on me. I had some people within like 10 minutes of my picture, like, you can go ahead and stop. And I was like, really? They're like, not interested at all. And I mean, it was like, you know, tail between your legs walking out of that restaurant feeling like a dum-dum. But at the same time, I had other people saying, that's the most incredible idea ever. Why hasn't anybody done this before? And I love that line is, why hasn't ever been anybody ever thought about this idea? And, and I think that's what we pride ourselves on is we love to push that envelope a little bit and into um, uh, little areas that most people wouldn't venture into because they're comfortable as a physician showing up to the office, doing your thing, making your money, going home and doing your thing. I'd get bored if that's all I was doing. And my wife hates it, but this is this is me. I love it. And, and I don't mind selling myself on the other side and, and being that salesperson. Yeah, but I'll tell you, Pat, one thing that Aaron has to get used to is as a physician, when you're working with device companies, you're used to hearing yes a whole lot. And then when you flip to the other side, you got to get used to hearing no a whole lot. And I think that's the biggest change. Totally agree with that. Because like I said, we, we've gotten no's where you're like, did he or she just say no to me? But yeah, hey, you're you're on the other side now, so you will definitely get your nose. So let's talk about a medical device company. So there, there's somebody who's coming out with a with a new hip, knee, whatever, and they want to utilize um, your facility for training. What happens? Do they bring their own equipment? Do they uh, bring their own teachers? How does it How does it work? We haven't alluded to this uh, directly yet. You know, we've talked about the infrastructure being amazing. We've talked about the service. Honestly, what really makes this business is I've got some of the most incredible employees in the world. Um, they're here till 11 at night. They're here Saturdays and Sundays doing these labs because a lot of these device companies want to come on Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. Our lab director, Paul, I don't think has had a weekend off in the last nine weekends in a row, and he's got a baby due in about two months. This can't be done without uh, you know the right employees and the right people, and they, have, they all have ownership in the company. Uh, I want them to walk by and pick up a piece of trash on the ground and feel like this is their place too, right? When a group wants to, uh, you know, set up uh, a bioskills lab with us or an event with us, um, we have a lab director, we have an events director, uh, we have a chief operating officer too, and so everybody gets involved. So you you call us and say, hey, I'm Striker and I want to do a, a robotic platform, total knee replacement. I want to have 20 surgeons fly in. I've got 20 of my own staff. I need you know 10 stations, and they start to go through that. So we have a, a form in essence that walks us through every question. You know, what day, how many days you may be or how many people. Once you go through this nice exhaustive form, it allows us to pretty much take that data. And we become so slick at it that within, gosh, two hours, we can come back with an invoice to them and say, a quote, and say, this is what it's going to cost. Here's everything we have. There are some specialty items. Obviously, we don't carry the million-dollar robots. You need to, you know, fly those in and we'll UPS it and FedEx it into the back. Um, And then we find out the gray zone equipment, right? Uh, do you guys have this, you know, retractor? Do you have this and that? So we go through those because we know we've done so many of these labs now. We know the little things that are missed because the worst thing that could ever happen is everybody shows up 
and there's some silly retractor that you don't have and the surgery can't occur now. So you just spent a hundred thousand dollars and you brought in all these people and flown all these people in and, and the lab's a complete, you know, failure because you missed something. So we spend a lot of time the weeks before to make sure every bit of that equipment is correct and every piece of it is done right. And then we help them out with where to stay for hotels, where to go for dinners. That's where our events uh, coordinator or director takes in and, and then how we cater all their food in. So it's literally a turnkey solution. We go through all these questions to make sure every single thing is answered. But I think where we become the four seasons is we ask questions that they don't think about. Hey, you know, you said this, but we would recommend you do this because we've done enough of these where that didn't get the, the ROI you're looking for from your physicians. You're, um, we've seen physicians come in and kind of shake their head about that technique. We highly suggest this technique. And a lot of them take our advice from us. And, you know, like you're asking, what kind of feedback do we get from the physicians and our clients is they tell us, I've never been to a place like this. This is the absolute best place. Uh, I've been to BioSkills Labs all across the U.S. And I don't know what it is about you guys, but it's perfect. But I know what it is. It's the whole entire package of the right employees, the right instruments, the right equipment, the attention to detail, uh, and providing a, a true Four Seasons infrastructure. Right? You walk into somewhere, you're like, wow, this place is awesome. Uh, all those things make the difference. And so, uh, but that process-oriented, you know, manner of an intake form, going through all the steps, making sure everything is going to be perfect, just like setting up a wedding. You got to have the right rose and the right color, whatever it is that you want. We do the same thing there. The facility is is one piece, and and the people that are there, but the bride and groom are a, a, a big part of that too. So when companies come in, I'm sure some companies do it better than other companies. Do the education better? What do the good companies do? Well, I, I think they take that four seasons approach. Also, I think they look at the entire project or lab or event from A to Z. You know, they don't leave anything, you know, to, to chance. Uh, they're not hoping this person gets it right. They double check everything. You know, sometimes we kind of are like, man, so-and-so is calling again. But that's great because that keeps us on our toes to make sure everything's done right. So, you know, like I said, they're spending a lot of money flying 20 physicians in, putting them in a hotel, taking them out to dinner, the stuff they don't even do in our building before they even get here. They've already dropped close to $100,000 just getting these people here. So these are big ticket items. And so they're just as concerned about it as as we are. Um, and so they have their own medical education coordinators and they have people that work very nicely in parallel with our coordinators and our directors. But when they see how much of the responsibility we take off of them and how easy it is, it's almost like your concierge. I got this. I got you set up at four o'clock today. You're going to go climb this little mountain or whatever. Same thing here. We got this. We understand it. Sure. Please ask your questions. Feel very comfortable. But when you get here, you're going to notice you've got a lot more free time to yourself to actually go and chat up with your physicians, get to know them, focus on them versus is the cadaver positioned correctly? Where is that one piece of equipment we needed? Because for them, you know, like I said, their return on their investment is their physician has to walk out of here educated, confident, and happy. If you can't get those three things and even one of them is missing, you probably missed out on an opportunity to bring in your product into that hospital system. Yeah, but I'd back it up even a step further, Pat, to answer that. And I'd say it starts with the with the inner belief of the company uh, of a concept that we talked about earlier, which is education is marketing. It's finding the right medical education coordinator in a world where you know regulatory and getting through the FDA and R and D and engineering are so critical. In many companies, that medical education budget 
is not as important internally as it is at other places. So the companies that I feel do it best give equal amount of attention to that medical education staff, that medical education budget, and and really do internally believe that education is marketing. And I think it starts with that fundamental belief and then extends into everything Aaron talked about er earlier. Bringing people into Austin is convenient for some, not convenient for others. More local training may be uh, more appropriate for other, other locations in the country. So let's talk about the future and see about what you guys have planned for possible expansion. Is this something that you, you've, you've thought about? Is it something that is uh, interesting to you? It's definitely a, a discussion point. We have lots of times. Our goal has always been to take this fragmented industry that's run either pretty well or pretty poorly and try to really set forward a gold standard. Right. And, and I think we've done a very good job here uh, with the limited budget and the investors we brought in and the things we instituted here at our flagship location in Austin. But now knowing what we know and having almost 10 years of experience under our belt, the appropriate step for us is to scale, uh, is to build two to three more of these flagships across the U.S. in correct geographical locations that can kind of cover the East Coast, the West Coast, and kind of the Midwest areas. Um, and so there's certainly cities we're already looking at. There's certainly organizations and, and private equity groups and investment bankers we're talking to right now. Uh, multiple ways of going by it. We can build another shop and, and do what we do and continue to grow our business and, and, and just do this for the next 15, 20 years. My goal and vision that I see is to really go out there and, and reset the standards and get rid of some of these you know, poorly uh, run bioskills labs that don't really understand why they're in that business except to make a dollar. Find some of the other ones that, uh, that have the same uh, principles as we do and either roll them up together with us or, or kind of unite in essence and, and really set up a, a true gold standard and a very elite standard of this is the way in the U.S. we educate our physicians once they're out of their residency and fellowships. This is how we innovate. This is how we bring new devices to market and, and truly push that envelope once again. And I know I've said that phrase a few times, but it's so true because I, I hate status quo. I, I can't stand it. I'm always going to do everything I can to change it to make it better. Uh, and, and the beauty is, is every single thing our corporation does today, tomorrow, a year from now, or 10 years from now, it's comes back at the very end to one tiny little line that paint, points back to the patient. Everything we do here is going to benefit you as a patient when you're sitting on that operating table, period. Uh, yes, I'd love to exit out $100 million. Yes, this and that. Yes, I'd like to have 20 of these around the world. But the cool thing that I can always sleep on when I go home very comfortably is what I did today is going to help out some grandmother, some teacher, some firefighter uh, that may be in the operating room or at a clinic or a hospital. So uh, you know, the drive to scale is definitely there. That's definitely in our future, the, the, the drive to try to roll up this industry and set up uh, even higher standards than what's out there is definitely a driver for us. So I'm excited about what the next two to three years are going to bring about. And it's, it's always interesting. It's sometimes it's a little stressful, but that's the beauty of entrepreneurship, right? And, and you know, what I would add to that, uh, which I agree with Aaron, I, I think we clearly want to scale. As we do so, I, I think when you look to the future, the, the two components uh, that, that we're lacking today that I think will be incorporated into this space are uh, data and technology, right? And so uh, you could spend an entire podcast on the data, right? I mean, 
Is it us sitting down with our clients that we've spent 10 years working with and saying, okay, let's look at where all your physicians are around the country. Uh, where do we need to scale to, to host your national labs, your regional labs, make it convenient for everyone and sign multi-lab contracts? That's one set of data. But then even internally, while you're doing labs, collecting data on surgeon efficiency, on you know knowledge of the rep, on on likely conversion to your device uh, based on the surgeon's experience. So we believe that data is going to be integral both internally and externally to our future. And then technology. I mean, we certainly need to to be aware of it. I I don't foresee uh, tissue being eliminated completely in the near future, but certainly you've got to be aware of, of VR and simulation and know that that those will play a role at some point in enhancing education. And, and to me, that, that still goes back to data, right? Is it, is it, you know, how many cadaveric total knees using the robot does a surgeon need to be proficient or do one more in a day than he was doing a year ago so that the operating room is more efficient at the hospital and that surgeon's getting a significant return on investment? Or how many does he need to do um, using VR and then supplemented with tissue in order to achieve the same milestone? You know, and so I think we realize that data and technology are going to play a role, and we're enthusiastic about both and continue to stay abreast uh, of both of those, and, and we look forward to incorporating them into into our future uh, structure as well. Virtual reality has certainly gotten a lot of press over the past several years. Do you guys consider yourself to be a bioskills lab or an education platform? Well, that's a great question. You know, it always depends on which client I'm talking to. If it's my clients that are all about bioskills lab or bioskills, the education is always a part of it, right? Um, when I speak to non-medical people, hey, Aaron, what is that med-to-market thing? You know, I, I kind of push more on innovation. You know, we're pushing the envelope of, of training like Top Gun pilots do, bringing in technologies that a lot of docs haven't touched yet, messed with yet. You know, that scene in James Bond where James Bond gets taken down to Q's lab and Q has all the fancy gadgets and the pin that explodes or the, the car that can, you know, fly pretty much. That's what this is. This is a James Bond lab for physicians, for device companies. This is an opportunity for you to come in here and do things that you just can't go do in the hospital. You can't mess around with stuff like that in the hospital when you got a live human being on the table. But here we have a lot more leeway to do things. So when I explain it to them like that, they're like, oh, okay, I get it. So you're just like, to, you can do just about anything in there and you can train people and you can do the coolest things and you can you can try things that you would never try at the hospital. Absolutely. You know, we, we, we can throw firecrackers at the, the military guys training to just simulate noise around them while they're trying to put a chest tube in because that's the environment they're going to be in, right? So, you know, they always say, you know, train like you're going to be when you're out on the field. So we do the same thing here. We try to put you under the same stresses and the same pressures. Uh, and so we try to mimic the most realistic environment possible. So um, a lot of different ways to describe what we do uh, and a lot of different faces when I'm talking to different clients. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's an incredible, incredible, innovative center where you can train, you can design, you can develop, and you can sell. Is VR a competitor or is VR a tool that you're going to use to train? Oh, I would think it's just going to be another, you know, uh, a tool, another piece into our armament as we go forward. You know, it's something we're going to have to definitely incorporate in. And we've already got groups coming in and, and discussing with us, you know, how can we use this and how can we do that? We actually are using some VR already. 
so we're always looking at the next step ahead to, to augment it. You know, haptics in the VR, so you can actually feel the different tissues as you push the needle through those kind of things. Uh, so there's a lot of really cool technologies out there that we're already looking to to try to partner up uh, with different organizations. Uh, so definitely will be a, a part of our future too. Yeah, and you know, Pat, I, I agree with Aaron's comments. And to add to them, you know, I think while you know traditional medical device bioskills is not going to go away, I mean, one of the things that we find that that we uh, not only get asked to help do, but asked to really push the envelope on is curriculum building. And I alluded to it a little bit earlier with the data, right? I mean, is it four VR sessions and three cadaveric sessions? Is it six VR sessions and two cadaveric sessions? Is it, you know, how many chest tubes do the paramedics need to to place uh, to be proficient? How many times can they simulate it and then do it on real tissue to be proficient? So I think as we look to maximize our space as a business, Right, we want to be as busy as possible with as high margin contribution on those days as possible. Education and curriculum building will always be a significant part of what we do. Even if the device companies come in on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, we're building curricula and partnering with people uh, on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays to try to figure out how to take care of that patient, as Aaron alluded to, and make people as proficient as possible. Again, with that core belief that education is marketing. Right, I mean. Those paramedics that leave here that that feel like their first pass innovation technique is significantly better than it was before they came here, that's a that's a game changer for, for that guy or for the surgeon that that added one more case during his day. And so that'll always be a significant part of what we do. You guys have a unique perspective in that you're clinicians as well as entrepreneurs. Are there some things that you think people in, within the medical device industry really need to focus in on? to help train their customers? I think uh, from experience and what I've seen in the operating room, uh, the the best medical device uh, reps can almost substitute into the surgery and be almost a surgeon. Uh, I've seen some that can actually literally tell the surgeon, "Uh, I wouldn't do that. I would do this. So truly having a passion for your, your, your specialty, if you're an orthopedic spine person, you need to almost know how to do the surgery. And that's why we push with a lot of these medical device groups is send in your sales reps without the doctors, but maybe their proctor and actually have them put the spinal cord stimulator in. So one of our device groups does a great job. They actually have their reps put the spinal cord stimulator in, put the leads in, make the pocket. These are guys that have never cut skin open to make a pocket. But once they start to understand and put themselves in the shoes of the surgeon and know what, why is that complex, why is that taking the longest there, then they can walk them through it. So you really, really, really need to try to put yourself in a position of, I'm almost like the surgeon, and I can almost tell the surgeon what to do, because you're going to be in that position at times where the doc's going to look at you and say, and what do I do next? Uh, and so if, if you want to sell and you want to be the number one sales rep in your device company, You've got to be that person because that's the exact surgeons pick those device reps and they become best of friends with them. Uh, and obviously, you, you've got to have the personality and all that to deal with the stress and, and dealing with docs all the time. But they look at you as their right hand person. And if you're that person, you've got the most successful business in the world. You're going to you're going to crush it at all times with these positions in the operating room. Yeah, and what I would add to that is even even outside the sales space, don't be afraid to to always ask questions and continue to learn. And what I, what I mean by that is some of the simplest and most nuanced things make, make the, the largest difference. 
So, you know, when, when you're training, a lot of times what a company will do is they'll, they'll have what Aaron and I call, you know, one or a few big KOLs, key opinionators. And those companies really zero in on focus on what those KOLs think and make decisions based on the feedback they're getting from those KOLs. Uh, but if you, if you go beyond those KOLs and you engage with your physician customers at, at training opportunities and you ask questions, you may find that the 90% of your clients like the handle if it was tilted 10 degrees more this way, and that is a game changer to your device coming off the shelf. And then the other part of asking questions uh, that I think is critical is healthcare is ever-changing, right? We are living in a world of bundled care initiatives where we're now working on decreasing length of stays and decreasing costs and maintaining quality, and the economics of healthcare are always changing. So continuing to understand the economic environment and the economic drivers of healthcare, you know, the, the day where if a physician A slammed his fist on the table and said, I'm only going to use this device or I'm leaving and going somewhere else, those days are disappearing. Now you've got large hospital systems negotiating with vendors. So you've really got to find ways to differentiate yourself and really understand that economic equation of quality over cost. Your device really has to either improve or maintain quality while decreasing cost. And if you continue to learn and continue to learn about the environment and continue to ask questions and stay engaged, I think it'll just set you up for future success. I just love understanding what's inside the minds of physicians, especially when they become entrepreneurs and start to see things from a different perspective, our perspective. So a few of my takeaways. First, education is marketing. That was really the theme of this whole conversation and the basis for their business. Education is marketing. But I'll tell you this. Bad education is not good marketing. Good education equals good marketing. So you really have to do it correctly in order for it to pay off for you. So it has to be done right. The other thing is every product doesn't require the same level of education. If you've got a simple device, a cadaver lab may not be the way to go. But education of a different manner uh, can be just as effective for you even though it's not the full-blown cadaver type of situation. Just do it right. The second point was they both looked to find the need and then define what the solution is based on that need. And that started from an appliance dolly business at A&M or an ice cream, uh, ice cream truck on Cape Cod. And then you know, kind of leading through anesthesia practice and starting, starting anesthesia practices and making sure that the needs were met there, all the way to leading them to med to market and really looking at education from the physician standpoint, but also talking to companies and understanding what their needs were. And they're not stopping you know, with, uh, with the establishment of the business. You heard how they continue to learn and how they continue to innovate based on the feedback that they're getting from the companies as well as the physicians that are coming through their training, uh, training courses. The last thing is John Schlitt had uh, some very interesting things to say when he said, help them gain skills that will set them up 
to have more successful practices. So I think we have to look at ourselves. We're not only selling devices, but we're selling technologies that can help physicians be more successful in building their practice. So it's a different level of sales, a different level of marketing when you step away from I'm just selling my product to you to I'm helping you build your business. Thank you for listening. Make sure you get episodes downloaded to your device automatically by liking or subscribing to the Mastering Medical Device Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please spread the word and tell a friend or two to listen to the Mastering Medical Device Podcast as interviews like today's can help you become a more effective medical device leader. Work hard. Be kind.